0: to the doctor Frankavilla Show. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Frankavilla, board-certified family physician and diplomate of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. I've been helping patients lose weight to treat and prevent medical problems for the last 10 years, and I'm taking what I've learned from them to you. In this podcast, you will learn the science behind why you struggle with your weight and what to do about it, tips for common challenges, work to fight bias about what a healthy weight really is, and improve your relationship with food and your body. Please remember that while I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. This podcast is meant to be informational and nature only, not medical advice. Please seek out care from your physician for your specific needs. Okay, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. Today, I have a super exciting guest, Dr. Angela Zuckman. And we are going to be talking about food addiction, sugar addiction, emotional eating. So great podcast for anyone who has ever felt like they struggle with their relationship with food. And Dr. Angela, as she is known by her patients and clients, really is an expert on keeping weight off. And so if you're someone who has struggled with maintaining weight, this podcast episode is also for you. So welcome, Dr. Angela. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) And let me share a little bit about Dr. Angela with you all. So she is an obesity medicine specialist with 16 years of experience. In fact, at my very first obesity medicine conference, back when it was called bariatric medicine, she was assigned to be my mentor. So Uh (laughs) super cool to have her on the podcast today. She has a clinic in Olympia, Washington, as well as an online program called the Empowered Weight Loss. She has helped thousands of patients and their families with her unique and compassionate approach to weight loss. She and her medical assistant, Marcelle Holmes, co-host a weekly podcast called Keep the Weight Off, which you can find on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, we will put that in the show notes. Dr. Angela received her medical degree from the University of Kansas School of Medicine. She got her master's of public health from the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and completed residency in preventive health at Loma Linda School of Public Health in Loma Linda, California. She's a board certified preventive medicine and obesity medicine physician. And in her time off, she can be found at the gym, hiking in the mountains, gathering friends in her home, or traveling. And she is the proud mother of two grown children, Jenna and Cecilia. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Angela. Thank you so much. This is really, really exciting
1: to be here. So yeah, I remember when we used to call it the American Society of Bariatric Physicians. That was in the early days of the Obesity Medicine Association. Yeah, yeah.
0: I have a feeling our name's going to change again at some point, you know, as we stop thinking about it just as obesity and start just thinking more about metabolic health in general. Yeah. 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 We'll see. We'll see. So how did you get involved in this field of obesity, weight loss? How did you end up doing this?
1: That's such a really good question because I spent decades working at the state health department uh, as an epidemiologist. And then I decided after 9-11, I was like, I really hate working with data. I want to work with people again. And so that's when I did my preventive medicine residency at Loma Linda. And I purposely picked Loma Linda because it was clinical. Like preventive medicine, you can do all kinds of things. You can work at the CDC. You can work at health departments, all of that. So I was working at Loma Linda and they have a really great preventive medicine program. I learned about smoking cessation. I learned about obesity treatment. And so, for a while, I thought I was going to do both obesity and smoking cessation. But then when I opened up my practice, I realized, I really, really do love obesity medicine. I really love helping people lose weight. I've always been interested in nutrition. I've had my own sort of I've had my own sort of restrictive eating disorder issues in the past, so and I've actually done figure competition, a figure competition. I would never do it again. But you know, it's possible to sort of take all of this to the extreme. And so I'm happy to have found like a happy middle in there. And the thing is like, I've always struggled with sugar. Like my brain loves sugar. You and And me both. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was always trying to do things to sort of compensate for that. And so when it came to helping people lose weight, I'm like, yeah, they're telling the same stories that I feel all the time, you know? And so that's when I decided I can use my own personal experience and I can really help people with this. And I spent a week with Dr. Alan Rader in Boise, Idaho. He has been my mentor. He's amazing. He's retired now, but he taught me everything I know about obesity medicine, plus learning everything that I think that we... a lot
0: of us, right? Like I think yeah. he, was, he was definitely a leader for a lot of he us. He
1: was, yeah, he's great. So, so anyway, that's how I got involved. And I opened up my practice, I don't know, 16 or 17 years ago now, and it's just been great. I love it. And then I realized pretty quickly, people need more help than what I can give them in the office. And so I started to notice patterns of, you know, like people would come in and they'd say, I know exactly what to do. You told me what to do. I can't make myself do it.
0: Yeah. So
1: that's when I was like, okay, people actually need more help than what I'm offering in the clinic. And so that's when I started getting interested in helping people with the thought work and the psychological aspects of all of this. And I started really poking into what is sugar and flour addiction and how does that play into all of this? And so, yeah, it's been a really great um, learning experience for me. And as I teach my patients and my clients, like they're all like,
0: oh, I get it, you know, so well, that's such like, I think what so many of the doctors I've interviewed have said is that, mm-hmm. you know, they went in, they had this interest in it and they thought it was just going to be that their patients didn't know what to do. Right. Like they didn't know right. what to eat or how to exercise. And it yeah. turns out that's rarely the case, right? People have yeah. eaten- pretty good idea of what Mm -hmm. healthy foods and less healthy foods are, right? They have an idea that they should be moving on a regular basis, but it's doing those things or stop doing the things that are not so great for us. That's really where the challenge is. So what are some of the key things people really need to know or do to keep weight off long-term?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. And that's like the question of the decade, right? So like, what do you do to keep weight off long term? I think one of the most important things that people need to understand is number one, obesity is a disease. It's not a character flaw, right? Yes. And so we say this ad nauseum obesity is a disease. Obesity is a disease. But people, they don't really understand that. I mean, I can say that over and over again. I've had people tell me, I've heard you say that for years, and now I finally actually get it. Like, it's a disease of the biochemistry of the body. And what causes this disease, in my opinion, and from what I know of the science, what causes this disease is processed food. And it's how the body responds to the artificial foods that we're all eating. So hardly any of us eat much natural food anymore. We eat foods that have been uh, made in factories, right? And so they've stripped all of the fiber out of it, they have concentrated it. I mean, the food industry is really good at making food. What's called, they say it hits your bliss point. Have you heard that term? I don't know that I have heard that term. Yeah. Yeah. So the bliss point is like the, the maximum amount of pleasure that you can receive where it's not too little and it's not too much. It's just right to get you to eat more and more and more of it. Right. And so what the reason why it's so hard to keep weight off is because we have a society and a food industry that is constantly triggering us to eat and eat and eat and eat more. And if you just watch an hour of TV, like how many commercials do you see for food or alcohol? And so, you know, it's interesting because I interviewed Dr. Ashley Gearhart on my podcast once. So Dr. Ashley Gearhart. Is an expert in food addiction and she's fascinating. She's like 40 some years old. She's young. She's already published over 500 peer reviewed journal articles. And she told me she developed what's called the Yale Food Addiction Scale.
0: Oh, yeah. Have I you heard of that? that? She's yes.
1: the yes. one who developed it. So, yes. the Yale Food Addiction Scale. So, Dr. Gerhardt was in her first year of grad school in psychology at Yale University. And she told me she was doing evaluations, getting people ready to go into bariatric surgery. She was also working with people who were struggling with alcohol and nicotine and drug addiction. And she's like, you know, um, she started seeing parallels emerging between the way people who were struggling with obesity talked about food and the way people struggling with alcohol and nicotine and drug addiction talked about their respective drugs. And so and I'm going to, I got the transcript from the podcast because I wanted. I want to read you her exact Ooh, words. I love it. it was fascinating. So she said, I was like, how far does this go? Right? Like, is this truly an addiction? Because that changes so much of the dominant narrative that I feel like I was hearing in society that I think is so pretty dominant today, which is that it's just willpower and it's just calories in and calories out. It's not about the food. It's just about your ability to resist. And instead of thinking there's these trillion-dollar industries that are designing these foods to induce Moorishness that was the word she used Moorishness, where you want more and more and more and more, and hit your bliss point and have maximum craveability. I mean, those are all synonyms for addiction. So when I said, "Hey, I really want to chase this down. Both Will and Kelly, those are her mentors, were so incredibly supportive of me. And in my first year of grad school, I really pivoted to that. And I will be grateful to them forever and ever. They were amazing and continue to be amazing. So now this is me talking, and that was all a quote from her and how she got started. So she developed the YFAS or Yale Food Addiction Scale or YFAS, where she took all the criteria that are used. To diagnose drug and alcohol addiction and apply them to food. Okay. And this scale has been used all over the world now and it's been validated in hundreds of studies. So, Carolyn, guess what percentage of the US population meets criteria for addiction to processed foods?
0: Ooh, that's tough. I'm going to go with like 60%. 60%? 60%. That's,
1: that's what I would think. When it comes to actual addiction, to process food, it's 14%. 14, like addiction, like, yes. Okay. Actual addiction, yeah. So it's the same as the propensity for alcohol and nicotine addiction,
0: right? Interesting. And there's so much overlap. I bet you see that in your patients, right? I see people who formerly had an alcohol addiction and they got Mm -hmm. sober, but now like sugar is like their drug, Mm -hmm. right? So yeah.
1: Yeah. Now here's the scary part. They've done this Yale food addiction scale in children. What do you suppose, what percentage of children do you think meet addiction criteria for processed food?
0: Gosh, my guess is it's going to be higher right now. So we'll go with like 25% if 14% of adults have the addiction. I'm going to say- It's 12% of children. Only 12% of kids,
1: okay. 12% of children meet addiction criteria for food addiction. And it's interesting, you know, because we don't let alcohol and tobacco marketers- market to children, right? We don't let children less than 18 and in some states 21 buy alcohol and nicotine products. And yet here we are, we're allowing food marketers to market addictive substances consistently, always, right? And they're putting the addictive substances in children's foods and children, 65% of their calories come from highly processed addictive foods. That's enough to scare the crap out of you. You understand what's going on? Like, that should scare all of us, right? So, think about the types of foods that we're talking about. Like, natural food produces a sense of satiety, like steak and asparagus, for example. Like, you just
0: can only eat so much of it and you're done. Yeah, for right? almost everyone, right? You get really full. Even like I have some blackberries in my fridge right now. And there's only so many, even if they're like the most ripe, but delicious blackberries in the world. Mm-hmm. Like at a certain point, you're like, eh, like I'm full. Like I'm done, right? I'm done. If about you take chocolate chip cookies and yeah. you know, I might eat myself sick on those. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So it's the moorishness, it's the desire for more. Think about water. You know, you drink a glass of water and you get sated. You're done, right? But what about a margarita? <laughs> you just want more and more and more of that sugar and alcohol combined. Right? And a little bit of salt,
0: right? That salt yeah. with the sugar often ooh, mm-hmm. like that definitely like, you know, kettle corn or something like that, that sugar and salt yeah. so together really Yeah.
1: Um, so, so that's what makes it so hard for people is these foods are designed to keep us addicted to them. Now, Here's what I want our listeners to understand. If 14% of adults meet addiction criteria for processed food, that means 86% of people don't actually meet addiction criteria. And yet so many of us are struggling with these foods, right? You said you struggle with sugar. I struggle with sugar. I've actually um, been known like cake is for me, it's sugar and flour combined. So think about there are two white powders and they're combined together with fat, right? And there are layers to it. Like the first layer, not so much sugar. The second layer, a lot of extra sugar. Like this stuff just drives me insane. And I have been known to pull cake out of a trash can after party. If people have thrown it in the trash and it's just kind of sitting there on the top, it's calling to me. And that sort of behavior just really distresses me. I'm like, what the heck's going on? So I asked Dr. Gerhart, like, I don't meet addiction criteria, but That's weird behavior. Like, how do you explain that? How could I not meet addiction criteria if that's the kind of behavior that I engage in? And of course I have to fight myself. If I have a party, you know, I put the cake down the disposal. I'm not going to put it in the trash. Right. And so what she said is, well, think about alcohol use. You know, there are plenty of people who struggle. They tend to binge on the weekend They don't like how much alcohol they're drinking, but they don't really meet addiction criteria for alcohol. The same thing is true with processed foods, the exact same thing. So that's what you want to understand is just because even if you don't necessarily meet addiction criteria, these foods are problematic for almost everybody.
0: They're easy to eat too much of. And I saw that really quickly with my kids. That, you know, of course I did my best to give them all the best foods. And then as they get older, you know, people start introducing them to other things. And like, just they would clearly live on like they did like fruit, which is also pretty sweet, right? But they would have like lived on like crackers and icing and like those things given the opportunity, right? And so, like, once we're exposed to those things, our brains want it a lot more, right? Like, they are rarely begging me for broccoli, but once the you know Halloween candy is on the counter, they're like, Can I have another candy? Can I have another candy? Can I have another candy? That's how our brains are wired, right? Because what I'll always talk about is in nature, right? If we were cavemen wandering around feeding ourselves, sugar is rare. Like you might find a honeycomb, have to fight off, you know, some bees to get the honey. You might find some ripe berries occasionally one time a year, but sugar was rare. And it is a great fuel source, right? It is an right. immediate fuel source. If you are trying to, you know, store fat for an upcoming famine, like you want to eat sugar so you can store fat, right? But we don't yeah. live in a world anymore. We live in a world where we can get as much sugar and most of it's very, very cheap. And so our body has not caught up with the fact that sugar is no longer rare.
1: Right. Right. And it's not likely to happen anytime soon. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> so, right. And, you know, gotten into battles occasionally with other professionals about this, but it's like, you know, we can try to change the food industry. That's like a very big, powerful industry, right? It's like taking on big tobacco. And so maybe that will happen in my lifetime. But I think that there's a possibility
1: that the more people listen to podcasts like this and get educated and say, we got to stop this then because- you know, in the field of public health, which I was in for all those years, like we are really proud of the fact that we slammed the tobacco industry and tobacco products are now outrageously expensive. It is socially unacceptable to be a smoker. And I like to compare processed food with tobacco because now Dr. Gerhardt's done research that shows that all of the criteria that they used back in 1988 to declare tobacco addictive, they can use with processed food. As well, and so, like, think about a donut in the same way you think about cigarettes. Mm-hmm. You know, just think about it like that. It's toxic. It's dangerous. It's going to kill you in the you same know, way. As
0: I have met patients who they will have like a cigarette like once a month when they're out with friends, right? Like they just uh-huh. don't get addicted to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's people like that with donuts, right? They have it occasionally, and they're like, "Yeah, it's fine." But for every person like that, there's someone who they have one donut and now they've had three, right? And I- and you know. When we talk about food as an addiction, one of the challenges is that unlike smoking or alcohol, where you can give those up, right? It's for most people like, you know, if I never have a drink again in my life, like that's fine, right? I don't have to have alcohol to survive. I don't have to smoke to survive but I've got to eat something. Right. Yes. And so there's no black and white where you're like, I'm just sober. I don't drink. I stopped smoking. I'm never going to touch it again. Like we have to eat something. And so mm-hmm. then it becomes like a little, a little more challenging than to just say like, Oh, I can give up smoking. Right.
1: Right. Well, alcoholics don't stop drinking water and tea and, you know, non-alcoholic beverages. And so people who struggle with food addiction don't stop eating whole foods. They just stop eating the processed crap that right. triggers so much foods. dopamine release.
0: Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. So.
1: yeah, exactly. So, so what do you do about this? You know, that's the big question. What do you do when you start to recognize that these processed foods are so highly addictive? I always tell my patients, figure out what your drug delivery system of choices. So for me, it's cake, it's sugar and flour in combination, for some people, it's candy. That's just pure sugar. For some people, it's uh, soda or coffee drinks. So that's caffeine and sugar in combination. Uh, for some people, it's just pure flour. So it's the salty, crunchy, the chips, the pretzels, the bagels, the bread, you know, those kinds of things. So I'm like, what does your brain respond to most? And I asked Dr. Ashley Gearhart about this. And she said, it kind of depends on what you were exposed to when you were very young. So whatever it was you were sort of raised on is generally the stuff that you're going to have trouble with. So, cause I was like, I don't care about bread. I couldn't care less about bread, but boy, you know, it's the cake, it's the sugar, it's the candy, that kind of stuff. So, so anyway, figure out what your drug delivery system of choice is, And then what I recommend is actually just getting off all processed food for like a month. So that you know that you're sober from it. And then you can experiment with your own brain and find out what kinds of foods really sort of trigger you. Right. So I have a three-step process for getting off sugar and flour products. Okay. And you have to do these steps in order. Okay. If you miss the order, then it won't work. So the first thing you do is you set a quit date and you set a quit date with your life in mind. So You have to be prepared. Remember when we first got our COVID shots and we were told, you know, be prepared to be sick for a couple of days. So you want to be prepared that when you're going through your withdrawal, you're going to be irritable. You're going to be cranky. Your brain's not going to function. You're going to have headaches. You're not going to feel good. You're going to want to divorce your husband. You're going to want to quit your job. Like you're going to be a mess. And so plan for that and set your quit date with that in mind. So like, I wouldn't set a quit date a week before the Christmas holiday. If you celebrate Christmas, I wouldn't set a quit date for the week that you're going to be making a presentation at work or something, you know, I would set your quit date with your life in mind. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing you have to do is to prepare to have really nasty cravings, especially on day three or four. So you got to get rid of all the crap food in the house. You have to just get rid of it. You can't have chips in your pantry. And so these goes, are
0: the the challenges when I have this conversation with my patients. Well, what uh-huh. I need to have the goldfish crackers for my kids, but I need to have the Rice Krispie treats for my, like I need to have the soda for my husband, right? Like the they go through this, well, this has to still be in the house. So how do you navigate that with patients when they're like, yeah, but I, this has to be in the house for this other person.
1: Yeah, well, when it comes to our children, I ask my patients, well, now that you understand how addictive this stuff is, do you really want to be feeding goldfish crackers to your kids? Like this is the food industry purposely priming your children to want their stuff. And what about the breakfast cereals and all of that? I want you to really seriously think about how you're feeding your children. Now, if you've got teenagers, older teenagers and other adults in the house with you, then you want to explain to them, hey, I just discovered that these processed foods are just as addictive as nicotine, and we really shouldn't be eating them, I'm not going to tell you to stop. But what I am going to ask is that you have a special place where this stuff is, and it's not left out on the counter, right? Or I would appreciate it if you want to go get a box of donuts, if you just keep them in your car and eat them away from home, that kind of thing, you know? So you're not telling other people how to live their lives. You're just saying, here's what I'm going to do. And here's how you can help me.
0: And again, kind of going back to alcohol, right? Like if you are trying to quit alcohol because it's not good for your health and you struggle with regulating alcohol intake, you're probably going to let the people closest to, you know, like, Hey, I got to stop drinking. It has caused me problems. Like, can you support me in that? Right? Like you do you. Because a lot of people can socially drink. Plenty of people have a glass of wine, you know, once a week and they're fine with that. But like, Mm -hmm. what would you do if that person lived with you? Maybe you wouldn't keep wine in the house, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. You have a really honest conversation with the people around you that we really should not be having these highly addictive processed foods sitting around in our house. And I have them watch a documentary called Fed Up. Have you heard of that documentary? Yes, I have. I don't think I've watched it though, but yeah. Oh, it's great. Any child who is seven years or old or older can actually sit through because it's It's geared for children. So if the entire family sits down together and watches that, kids will oftentimes go to the pantry and just start throwing stuff out. Like they are, they get it, they get it. And so that's a really good way to help get the the family on board as well is to have everybody in the family watch that documentary. So step two, get rid of all the stuff. Step three is to plan all your food through your withdrawal. So I recommend that you plan five days of meals, and I actually have a sugar detox menu that I have a download for if people are interested in because it's got it's got really good protein intake it's all unprocessed foods, proteins, healthy fats, none of this crappy food, you know, no protein shakes or And I'm not necessarily saying protein shakes are bad, but I'm just, you want to stay away from artificially flavored things, right? Especially in that
0: detox, right? Like they're re-regulated.
1: Exactly.
0: Exactly.
1: So when people come in and they say, well, you know, I tried to do the sugar detox, but I wasn't successful with it. I ask them, did you do the steps in order? Because if you've still got stuff sitting around your house, or if you planned your detox for a period of time where you need to be on and suddenly you're cranky and you know sugar is going to help you feel better, like... There's always, you got to go through the steps in order. Did you plan all your meals ahead of time? Did you figure it out ahead of time? The planning is the key. It really is.
0: You know, you probably know this data, but I remember when we learned about smoking cessation, quitting smoking, I believe what I learned was that it, took the average person nine attempts that's the Mm -hmm. average before they finally quit cigarettes for good and so that of course we know people who like quit the first time but like of course and we say the same thing for cigarettes right like set yourself up for success like you know pick a quit date but like I think it's also important to recognize like you may not be successful the first time and then like you Mm -hmm. have to learn from that right Well, what what I chose a bad time I chose the time because I was going on a trip and I wanted to lose weight for a trip but it actually really wasn't the best time to try to quit processed food right or you know or back X, Y, or Z happened. I thought it was a good time, but then my kid broke his leg and, like, it ended up being a stressful week and I was at the hospital and, like, you know, so, like, yeah. give yourself grace too, right? If it wasn't the right time, okay, let's try again.
1: Well, and not only that, but you can have months of sugar and flour sobriety and life will throw you a curveball like that. And, or you get sick and you take cough medication that has sugar in it and that gets you started all over again. Like, there are all kinds of reasons why. And, why we can get back
0: into this stuff and so So do you personally like you don't eat sugar at all at this point or do you like you do it oh i wouldn't say that no like yeah i'm very deliberate about
1: like every year on my birthday i have to have a talk with myself and i have to ask myself okay i know that if i have a piece of cake i'm gonna have three or four days worth of cravings afterwards am i willing to go through that usually the answer is yes Because I do like to have cake on my birthday. Yeah. Right. And especially if it's like a milestone birthday or something like that. But that's always the question that I'm asking. Like, I've figured out what kinds of foods don't give me a problem and what kinds of foods do give me a problem. And I can be very, I'm very, very deliberate about it.
0: I like to use the word intentional a lot, right? Like, it's like, you're like, okay, like it's my birthday. This is an appropriate, normal time to eat cake. And I need to set myself up for success. Like maybe I can't keep any of the cake in my house because exactly. I will eat all the leftovers, you know? And I exactly. don't want to eat all the leftovers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and, you know, if you know how your brain responds, like we did a podcast episode one time, my medical assistant, Marcel, and I do podcasts. And she came in to me one time and she said, I, we need to do another podcast on emotional eating. And I said, what's going on? And she said, I actually went to Albertson's this morning, which is our local grocery store, and I got a big piece of chocolate cake and it's sitting up front behind my desk and I'm eating it and I want to stop. you got to help me. And I'm like, well, can I go get that cake? Can I, can I take it? And she said, yeah, please do. That's why I told you. So I went up and I'm like, what am I going to do with this cake? It's big piece. This is triggering for me, right? And I thought, well, if I put it in the trash, you know what's going to happen is after everybody leaves, I'll go get it out of the trash. So, and usually I'll put it down the disposal, but I didn't have a disposal in my office. So I actually put it down the toilet. Wow. Okay. You're committed. Do, do you ever want to really
0: see? treat sugar like an addiction? You're like, we're flushing it. We're flushing the sugar. I,
1: I, and if you ever want to see anything disgusting, it is chocolate cake in a toilet bowl. It was gross. And I had Marshall come back and said, you got to see what this looks like in the toilet bowl. You'll never want to touch it again. <laughs> So, and it turned out that what Marshall was dealing with was grief. Mm. She Something had happened and she had, she was dealing with feelings of grief. Her father had been dead for many, many years, but something had happened that re-triggered the feelings of grief. And so she was comforting herself. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's a great transition to one of the things I wanted to talk about, which was emotional eating and what sort of the overlap is there with addiction? How is what is emotional eating? Like, how would you define that for someone? So they can say like, do I have emotional eating? What is that?
1: Well, we all eat for emotional reasons. So I define emotional eating as anytime you're eating for any reason other than to nourish your body or give yourself energy okay so many of us eat when we're bored where we eat for pleasure like going out to eat could be you know we eat for connection um we and, and there's emotional drinking as well right so if you go out for a sugary coffee beverage or you go out for drinks with friends like there's always meh, most of us are pretty constantly engaging in emotional eating and drinking and it's very socially acceptable and It's heavily marketed by the food industry.
0: Like it's not always a bad emotion, right? Like sometimes we're emotionally eating because we're celebrating or we're treating ourselves or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not always because we're sad or depressed or grieving or anxious. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: emotional eating is extremely common and it's something that I would never say all emotional eating is bad. But I would say that if we're eating consistently to try to buffer negative emotions, that we have to work on that. Okay. And so what do I mean by buffering? Buffering is any time that you put something in between yourself and a feeling that you don't want to feel. And here's what I've noticed over all the years that I've been practicing obesity medicine. Sometimes people will be off food and alcohol, but they'll buffer with something else. So They'll start shopping. And the next thing you know, they got great big credit card bills, or they'll start gambling. There are all kinds of ways that we buffer. For me, this thing is a buffer.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hold so, up for iPhone if you're just listening. So yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that we have to do is we learn have to learn how to stop buffering and so that we don't end up turning to some other sort of toxic buffer, right? And learn how to actually feel our negative emotions. And that's a whole process in and of itself. And this is why lasting weight loss is so hard. And this is why people say, I know what to do, but I can't make myself do it. Right. And the reason is because we haven't learned how to not buffer, how to feel our negative emotions. And so that's one of the things that I'm teaching in empowered weight loss is how do you Learn how to allow yourself to feel your negative emotions, because sometimes it's terrifying. You know, we have primitive brains inside our heads. Um, Our primitive brains want pleasure. They want to avoid pain, and they want anything that's easy and convenient that will save energy in case the saber-toothed tiger comes along. So we have these remarkable primitive brains with these three motivations And our primitive brain is like, we're not going to feel a negative emotion. No way in hell. And as a matter of fact, there's a really good solution over there. Those cookies will really help, right? Yeah. yeah. So we are working against our own brains when we're trying to overcome emotional eating and drinking. And so that's why it takes a lot more than just going on a diet.
0: Yeah. And sometimes the word I'll use is like, we're all looking for ways to soothe ourselves, right? So if we're stressed, we're anxious, we're looking for a way to like soothe ourselves. And so- sometimes I just try to shift people to more positive behaviors, right? So exercise of course can be abused, but for a lot of people going on a walk or doing some sort of exercise can be soothing or yoga sometimes journaling, sometimes just listening to enjoyable music, right? Like, is there something else we can do to soothe ourselves in that moment while we're trying to learn how to sit with our emotions that isn't eating or alcohol or spending too much money because we do have to soothe ourselves. And most of those things are not as powerful, right? That's why it's hard to replace those habits because food or alcohol are going to light up our brain so much more than meditation or yoga is going to light up our brain. But if we stick with it for weeks and weeks, then sometimes we can switch from stress eating to, to journaling or going on a walk or some other behavior too.
1: One of the things that I always recommend as a first step is to, instead of, and I was taught this by an eating disorder specialist when I was working with her years and years ago, I would find myself just going into my pantry and just with this feeling of I couldn't even describe what the emotion was. I was just, I was just agitated. And she said, well, go sit down and write a page. She said, if you still want to eat after you write on the page, then you can eat, but do that first. And I found out I was actually feeling jealous. I was shocked. It wasn't agitation. It wasn't anxiety. It was jealousy. And just the act of naming the emotion gave me so much relief.
0: Yeah. I got goosebumps when you shared that. Cause that's like had to have been like a
1: huge light bulb. We're like, well, it's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. It was super, super interesting because who wants to admit to feeling jealous, but when I recognized, oh my God, I'm jealous. The people I was jealous of, I had been in the gym earlier that morning. My kids were still young in school and there were, and I was home with the kids and there were women at the gym that were getting ready to go to work. And I didn't even realize that I was seeing them and feeling like I should be like, they're doing important things and I'm just going to go home. And so I was jealous and it took that, like our emotions are really, really important. And it took me recognizing, oh my God, I need to get back in the working world. Like my kids are in school. I can work. I can go back to work. And so I called up a friend of mine who, and that's how I got back into clinical medicine. And if I had kept eating, I would never figured that out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So understanding what our emotions are is powerful, powerful. And we can't just keep eating our way through them. It's really, really important.
0: Oh my gosh. I love it. Well, I think yeah. we covered a ton um, I think so too. and I'm going to try to put as much of that as I can in the show notes. We'll put your resource in there. Maybe, I don't know if there's an online version of the Yale food scale or not. There Yale is addiction. Okay. So maybe yeah. I can find that and get that on there too. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that that would be, you know, if you have fi- tried to figure out why you're struggling so much, that may be a great tool. Okay. I'm sorry. I had, you have to ask you one more question. Of so, of course. Or food addiction, because I, I think you probably know I'm a huge fan of our anti obesity medications. And, yes. and so I think those also can be really helpful if someone does have true the food addiction, right? Like we all struggle with processed food. We all struggle with emotional eating. But for people with food addiction, do you feel mm-hmm. like the medications, you know, can play a role for those people? Absolutely, absolutely. I have seen over and over again, people
1: say, I just don't, my brain does not respond in the same way to food or alcohol.
0: Yeah. Yeah, There's so much overlap. I think we're going to see with the food and the alcohol, especially with some of Mm -hmm. our new meds. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't you just so people know, can you just remind people where they can connect with you? We'll put that in the show notes, but how can people find you if they want to find your, your courses and connect with you?
1: So I'll give you a link to, um, the five day sugar detox menu so that if people are interested in going through that process, um, they can just download a link. Um, I have a Facebook group that's totally free. It's called Sugar and Flour Busters Society. Um, so you just you just get on Facebook in the groups and search for Sugar and Flour Busters Society. Um, and there are people in there from all over the country. So it's just it's not just my patients, right? So there are people all over the country. And then the other thing to do is to start listening to the Keep the Weight Off podcast. I love so, it. Yeah, yeah. It's a Okay, it's a so point.
0: we'll put the links, make sure we get all those in there. And I think until next week, take care. All right. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Frank show, where we learn about all things related to weight and health. If you love this podcast, make sure to leave those five-star reviews and share this podcast with a friend or loved one. If you have a topic about weight and health you want me to tackle, head over to the website, thedrfrankavillashow.com to submit your question and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss next week's episode. Take care.